0: Welcome to Composer Talk. I'm your host, Matthew Wong. As a film and TV composer, I love talking to others about their backgrounds, composition techniques, music tech, and more. We all watch films, TV, and digital media, and know the important role that scoring plays in storytelling. I want to invite you to join me on this adventure to learn more about the artists who are behind the scenes creating the music. If you want to learn more about the people interviewed on this podcast, make sure to follow us on our socials. And if you enjoy Composer Talk, please take the time to rate and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your preferred listening site is. Hey everyone, just wanted to take a quick second to shout out our friends at QDB.com. That's C-U-E-D-B.com. QDB is a cloud-based software that allows you to make your own customizable cue lists for spotting, composition, orchestration, mixing, and cue sheet delivery. If you'd like to try it out, use the code COMPOSERTALK for 15% off for one year. My next guest is the best sound designer I know. He's contributed his unique sounds and synthetic textures to projects ranging from Bloodshot to Dunkirk to TAG and Marvel's Iron Man VR game, among others. Without further ado, I'm excited to welcome Drew Jordan to the show. Drew, how are you doing?
1: Hello, thank you for having me on. I'm well, thank you very much.
0: Yeah, it's a pleasure talking. Uh, Out of curiosity, do you typically work from home or do you... Like uh, go to composer studios. Uh, I, I have been.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I I've done some of both. Uh, now, obviously, I'm I'm working from home, and I have been for quite a while now. Uh, uh, several years now.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I I do miss the studio environment when I'm not there. I I really like that immediate. Uh, Interaction, you know that immediate client interaction, where you can you can you, it's the same body language and, and the same mannerisms and everything you get when you're as a composer when you're working with your director or with producers or something like that. You get lots of extra extra information in person.
0: Yeah, it must be nice to see a composer kind of like jolt out of their chair or something when it sounds really really nice.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, those ooh moments. Yeah, <laughs> yeah th- those are pretty fun. Those it's it's like it's like a, a jolt. It's like I don't know. It feels really good. I imagine a composer gets the same the same moment anytime they're working with their director. I know I did on the on the few little things that I've written on.
0: Do you ever get that like thing yourself, where like you're working on some like sound design thing at home, and then you just like you're like, wow, I can't believe I just made this. Oh, all the time,
1: all the time, and and often it, it comes about by accident, where you'll be work, trying to I'll be trying to work on something completely different from where I end up, and you just trip over something. And suddenly you go down this whole new wormhole into a completely different area. And <laughs> it's easy to lose a lot of time doing that. But I think it can also be really fruitful.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You you kind of inform your own work on on the project.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. It's almost and like a feedback loop. And there. sometimes
1: it doesn't yeah, yeah, yeah. And sometimes sometimes it doesn't work out so well. Sometimes you just lose time chasing down something that You can never quite get there when you really should have been using the time on something else. But I think that's just creativity in general.
0: Mm. So I want to ask about, well, actually, so Bloodshot was the last movie I saw in theaters, possibly for a while. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And yeah, there's some really cool sounds there. I mean, obviously you've made sounds for like some of my favorite movies. Um, And I want to ask about like the first time you noticed a sound or like a sonic moment in a movie that like got your attention.
1: I'm not sure I could point to a specific one. I've thought about this a lot. And I, I think there has just, I, I've absorbed so much in the last 30 years that I don't know that I could locate a single one. And, and, and certainly not only in film. Hmm. I, I originally came from concert music. And I thought I was going to be trumpet player. You know, my, my Most of my lifetime's training has been as a trumpet player. But I think one of, my, one of my reasons for going into that was that I, when I was very small, my dad played in a, our local symphony, which is mostly college professors from neighboring towns and you know, Albuquerque and, and uh, Las Cruces and Lubbock, Texas and, and places like this. Um, but there was, I don't, I don't know what they were playing. We went to take my dad dinner at their rehearsal break and there was some section that was two bass trombones and a tuba. And it was really brash and it was really, you know, edgy and buzzy. And I just remember being stunned and asking my mom, what is that? What is that? What is that? So maybe that was my earliest sonic memory. But I think in terms of the most critical ones, uh, I don't know. There's, there, I, I, I think I'd have to go outside of music for those kind of ilum- moments of illumination.
0: That's interesting. So you were like, you weren't like chasing like to make like weird sounds even like the trumpet or like go for like straight like lesser known articulations or things like that
1: eventually I was i I started out classical trumpet, uh you know high school band, all of that kind of stuff uh but I always had an ear for the extreme uh, i I grew up pretty pretty interested in like metal metal music, and there's not a lot of trumpet in in metal and those, those were the kind of sonic textures that that interested me and that I felt so much more than anything I could dream of making on a trumpet. Hmm. And I think starting there led me down lots of different paths that took me toward the world of the extreme. And I, I, I went all the way through college. I even did a year of grad school as a trumpet player, two years of grad school, actually at two different schools, as a trumpet player and studying extended harmony and post-tonal music theory and all of these kinds of things. And I feel like my taste just kind of outgrew what I was, the ceiling of what I was going to be able to do and what interested me on the trumpet. So I i think I went to, I think, I think maybe I started down that path once I heard Serenity for the Victims of Hiroshima, when it was less about notes and more about textures and gestures. And, and that kind of really opened my eyes to what to what music could be. And it was less about analyzing functional harmony and more, more about the bigger concepts. And the idea of emotional responses based on moments instead of on melodic lines or uh, any kind of harmonic figure really opened my eyes and my ears to a whole new world of music.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think... F- for me, it was like Silver Apples of the Moon. I had a very similar reaction where I actually hated it at first, and then realized like, yeah, yeah, there's a lot to unpack here in terms of emotional, yeah, 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 reaction to sound.
1: I, I think I initially got that from well, now now I'm not now I'm not so sure. I think I initially got that maybe from Varez. Hmm. but I, I'm not to, I'm not totally sure. Because there's there's some stuff he does that, by current standard, you know, and by by my creative standard, is is a little bit silly and is a little bit old fashioned. But then I think, well, he was doing it more than a hundred years ago, so that's got that's got to count for something.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's a funny thing too with like guitars because, or I guess uh, I mean, I never really like went too deep down the metal path, but definitely played in some like death metal bands in high school, but. There's something just so appealing, I guess, about distortion at like around that age, right? Like high school and all that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That teenage angst all in one sonic package, right? And, b- but at the same time, it can also be so incredibly diverse and it covers up a lot of mistakes. I, I think it just metaphorically counts for so much.
0: Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think Sun is another great example of like one of those
1: oh, of course. moments for me
0: where it's like, oh, yeah, this is just like, it just feels like energy sometimes.
1: Yeah, yeah. They're, they're one of my very favorite concerts I've ever been to. There's, there's nothing I've, quite, I've felt that's quite like the way that my, that, that my chest was vibrating mm. in that concert, where you can feel the low-frequency chop in the air physically. And it's not that same, you go to a loud concert and your pants are vibrating. you know, The, the legs of your pants are vibrating. It was, You could feel the chop. You could feel the rumble in your breath and and then the the whole spectacle of the thing was so completely stunning it was it was almost ritual i mean it was definitely ritualistic in in a sense and they primed it by loading the room for like 45 minutes with fog machines and then they only lit from behind for almost the whole show except when their vocalist came and then he had this green spotlight at his feet that was pointing up at him and then for half of the set he was wearing this this grim robe that was covered in broken shards of mirror whoa and so that light that green light coming from underneath him that already cast all these crazy shadows on his face started to scatter around the room and then he had these laser pointer things on his fingers and he would he would point them at himself and 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 move around in certain ways as he was doing these insane insane vocalizations i've never heard anything quite like it and it was it was terrifying but also so massively enriching and beautiful it was a great experience and and now i get that from all of their records like uh, monoliths and dimensions especially is is one that's uh, a real gut punch for me
0: mm-hmm. yeah it's interesting how it's just like it's such a different thing when you're at those like volumes and you're you're actually in the live experience oh yeah
1: yeah i, I like their motto of uh it it has to, or it's not a motto. There, practice of like you have to play it as loud as possible. You have to experience them as loud as possible. And, and then if you, if you if you don't, you know, if you listen to it at a low volume, you don't get that same. You don't get that same spiritual connection or whatever to
0: it. Right, yeah, it's truly remarkable. I think that some people forget that sound, it or especially when using like headphones or whatever, it's just that sound is a physical thing, and yeah.
1: That's exactly right. Yeah, it's it's mechanical energy. It's it's not radiative. You're not you're not absorbing it in any kind of radar dish kind of way. It's a mechanical vibration. Mm-hmm.
0: So, out of curiosity, what was the um the first time you like played with the synthesizer? Like, did you have any like growing up? I
1: uh, I didn't have any growing up. Um, my brother and I both took piano lessons at the same time, and we had some you know fine little console piano or something, and then. We would rotate, so one day, one of us would be on that, and then the next day we would be on uh, this little Kawai basic, you know, preset synthesizer, and that had kind of sawtooth wave patches or whatever on it. And so I'd mess around with that a little bit, but the interface was clunky, and it was one of those uh, early '90s interfaces that's all one LCD readout and then a big knob and then a couple of buttons. So it was it was a little a little too esoteric for me when I was nine. But it was, it was fun to hear. I mean, that was when I first started to notice the difference between wave, wave shapes and, and what each could be used for and, and all of that. The first time I really dug into a synthesizer was in college. And at one point, the college I went to did have a small electronic music group. And, and there was a little bit of attention on it. Um, but by the time I went there, that was long gone. And there was only one member of that left. And he was working in the recital hall. And he had a few things in his office. And one of the things that he had in there, and he and I got to be close because we were I was working on the Recital Hall tech crew. And uh, one of the things he had in there was an ARP 2600. And that was the first time I ever really dug into how synthesizers worked and, and what the language was. And e- even then, it wasn't very deep because I just didn't have much access. And there was nobody around where I was other than this guy, Gerald, who had any kind of context for it at all, so the the first time I guess I really got into it and, and, and had a community around me where I could throw ideas around and learn things from them and you know trade concepts or whatever was in grad school and I started a class where we were focusing on reactor, native instruments reactor, and that that was really pivotal for me that was that was one of the key moments for me to leave trumpet. I started out like all instrumentalists where oh yeah, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to retain my vehicle, but I'm going to add these things and I'm going to play trumpet into a mic and put a bunch of effects on the back end of it. But what I found was no matter what I did, no matter what modules I used, no matter what algorithms I put into place, I was only ever going to be a trumpet player playing into guitar pedals. And it was only ever going to sound like a trumpet player. So um, that's when I decided I, I really need to change paths and pursue this thing only and leave the trumpet behind.
0: That must have been like a scary thing if like if you've been going to music school and i guess like I don't know it's a big like identity shift i'd imagine, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I had zero context for it whatsoever. I I'd been focusing on being a trumpet player for like 20 years at that point, you know, on on concert music specifically for for like 20 years. Wow. So it it was, a, it was a big changeover to go from zero context to one electronic music specialist, you know, academic electronic music specialist, but then also a composer who'd never written anything in his life. And I had one, I had one mentor in, in grad school named Mark Trail, whose music is stunning. His concepts are stunning. Uh, he was really a beautiful artist and he's, re- he's passed away, who went to bat for me, the brass department at my grad school was not thrilled about me leaving and the composition department slash uh synthesis sound design sound art whatever esp experimental sound practices at uh, that was this was at cal arts uh, that faculty wasn't really thrilled about me joining the program and being trying to catch up with all the people who were in the program who were there as their primary goal and I was coming at it like 15 years after any of them, at least 15 years after any of them had been already been steeped in it and figuring out who they were and what kind of art they wanted to make. And this, this guy, Mark Trail, was, he was really my access point, my, my primary access point. And I'm eternally grateful for, for the help that he gave me. And then it was two crazy years of staying up all night, studying, just trying to catch up with the people in my, in my cohort. Wow, and that was that was a deep dive into Max MSP, and that was the first time I ever touched a DAW really, and uh, had a little bit of studio time on a on a pretty decent Pro Tools rig, and a, a couple of good recording rooms. And it was around that same time that I had a friend who introduced me to modular synthesizers, and he performed a couple of shows, and we got we got pretty familiar, and he helped me pick out a, a handful of modules for my own system, and I built a two row by 104 HP modular synth that I basically learned everything I know about synthesis um, that I used to learn basically everything I know about synthesis. And it was a, it was a, it was a hard deep dive (laughs) for sure.
0: Yeah. It's funny to like, think about um, trying to learn how to, or like starting in something like reactor where it's like all in the computer. And I mean, obviously you see little patch cables as, before you mm-hmm. even touch like a real modular synth, even though that's kind of like yeah, around, it's funny to me to think of like guitar players growing up who are never pl- who have never played a real tube amp and just like go straight into their computer first, yeah, yeah, well,
1: I, I don't know I, I, I think it's not really all that different from somebody like Niall Rogers who apparently just plugs directly into the board mm-hmm. at whatever studio, and then they do whatever they want with it after that and there's no amps and there's no preamps I mean, I mean i guess there's probably a di box but other than that i think it's just direct into the board right but that that whole process is getting so elegant now with all of the reamp options and and multiple amps and multiple multi recor- multi track recording and i mean re- recording guitar is is a, a cool beautiful complex art now
0: right yeah it's it's i don't know i guess it's a little more than like if you just like output in midi into a computer.
1: <laughs> yeah, 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 it's, it's not just uh I, I mean even that you can get pretty complicated with that too. For sure. You can you can get I mean things things like the electron boxes where you can do all kinds of wacky things with your midi sequences. Mm, right. Or or even uh, hardware sequencers in Eurorack land. You can you can get there's t- there's tons of these modular synth sequencers that go super deep.
0: Yeah, for sure. So what led you to like moving to LA or like, can you describe how you got there? Sure.
1: Um, When I was in my bachelor's in New Mexico and I was in New Mexico at the time, I had, for my degree, I had to do an internship and most of the people in my program would go work for the El Paso Symphony or they'd go work for the album, you know, one of the symphonies in Albuquerque or something like that. Most of it was concert music oriented. And I knew as a music business major that 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 seemed like a very small ambition. It was too small of an ambition for me. And I wanted to do something bigger and I wanted to do something more commercial than that. So I started asking around and a connection of mine set me up with with an orchestrator slash arranger in LA named Chris Walden, who uh, agreed to take me on for a summer. And I was basically prepping sheet music for his big band and for sessions we did a John Legend record and we did uh, a couple of jazz records while I was there and that was a huge eye-opening experience for me it was we would we were recording everything at Capitol and uh, we were he he was working out of uh, Bel Air at the time I I think he's he works at Capitol now I I think he's got a room at Capitol now but that was a summer in LA and while I was in LA I realized This is where I need to be, and I need to be involved in this business somehow. I owe it to myself after all the classwork and all of the training and everything to to put myself in a context where I was going to get the most immediate experience. Mm -hmm. But also in a place where I was going to be able to make a living doing something that was more interesting to me than running books for a symphony. So uh, while I was there at that time, I got connected with some of the brass department at California Institute of the Arts where I ultimately went to grad school and that summer was kind of my white lab coat experience i was prepping for my senior recital as a trumpet player but i was also trying to figure out how to expand into a path at cal arts a degree path at, at cal arts so there was a lot of a lot of new information to absorb in film and in software and in all of these kinds of you know new music Stuff outside of orchestral concert music and more into unaccompanied solo trumpet and, and trumpet with electronics. And that summer was, was pretty pivotal. And then I, I had missed the application cutoff. So I had to wait a whole year. And that's when I did a year of grad school at, in New Mexico. Then I, that's where I ultimately went to grad school, was at Cal Arts. It was, uh, yeah, the, the, the following year.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Or no, it was, it was uh, a year and a, and a half following.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Do you feel like CalArts like uh prepared you well for I mean the the crazy job that you have now?
1: <laughs> in some ways, yes, in some ways no. While I was there, there was there was not a lot of uh film industry training in the music department. Uh I, I think since that has basically taken over a lot of a lot of what's happening there. I've been sort of out of the loop there for for a couple of years, so maybe that's changed. Hmm. But the real the real nosedive into film composing was an internship i got in my last semester there working with john powell and uh i i had been doing some pretty intensive max msp studies with with mark trail and uh, i saw a job listing on one of the job boards at school where they were looking for someone to help them i think they were at the time they were they were wanting to build the the MIDI systems and they were doing a bunch of network slash OSC configuration and I had done some of that but by the time I got there we had all realized that it was way above what I could do at the time and so they they brought on somebody else John Crooks and he built some amazing wacky things for them but um, I had already gotten that position thanks to Jermaine Franco Shout out to her. She's awesome. She's the best. Kind of my, my, my industry big sister. I, I owe a lot to her. So I was already there. So I, I, I just started working on everything else in the studio around that. So we did a bunch of recording sessions and, and I helped the tech a lot. Johnny uh, Tronweiser. And I built a bunch of computers for their samplers. And he showed me around Pro Tools a lot. And, and we worked on their S5 a little bit. Their um, Euphonics S5 board a little bit. And I got a lot of very practical experience while I was there, hmm. and I'm 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 really thankful for the time that I had there. I, I really enjoyed working there.
0: Did you know Jermaine prior to to that job posting?
1: I did not. I did not. And then finding out that she was from El Paso, we had some we had some common ground. We we knew events in the area, and we'd heard you know specific kinds of music, and we could talk about the landscape, and and so we had a pretty we had a pretty great connection very quickly
0: Hmm, gotcha
1: because i I had gone to school my my bachelor's was at new mexico state in las cruces new mexico and it it was 45 minutes away from el paso Mm -hmm. so i was there all the time for symphony concerts and and uh rehearsals with accompanists who were music professors at a music academy there and things like that right but connecting connecting with her was really great
0: for sure and yeah i loved a lot of the stuff you did with her on tag too among other things. Yeah,
1: that that was a fun one. Yeah, that was a fun one. That was, the, the projects I've done for her have all been kind of rushes. <laughs> so it's like, hey, we need a bunch of this stuff and we need it really fast. And I don't feel like I have, I have ever been able to put as much of myself into things for her as I feel like I owe her. So I feel, I feel a little bit, you know, a little bit of regret that I, I wish I could have done a little bit, a little bit more for her.
0: Well, I'm sure there'll be some more time soon to really flesh out and yeah, just bring it even extra yeah, 10% yeah.
1: soon. Yeah. yeah. Well, we can hope, yeah. <laughs> we can hope.
0: Uh, well actually right there. So you said that, uh, she asked for like a lot of stuff, but could you talk a bit about like what, like, I guess the, I don't want to do like the day in the life, but like when a composer reaches out, like what do they typically ask for? Like what are requests that you've gotten?
1: Uh, it's been, it's been different for almost every composer I've worked for. And I've, I've had I don't, almost 70 different clients in the last three years. And, uh, the process is different for every one of them. A, a sort of universal way of working is, I, I think, a, very similar to what I've experienced in, in as a composer as well, where you find a, a playlist of reference tracks, and they'll send you, they'll send you, I don't know, a hundred tracks that all have, hey, can you make something that's kind of like this? Can you get me close to this? Can you get me close to this? And uh, so, that's where I start. And then once I have templates for all of that kind of thing then I'll branch out and make things that I think accompany those templates very well. And then I'll send over, I don't know, some projects it's a 100 zebra patches. Some projects it's contact instruments like you mentioned with Brad. Sometimes it's, uh, it's uh, a bunch of audio editing for, for various things. I did a, I did a project uh, with Joe Trapanese that was one of those. There was a lot of audio editing. And then I also sometimes do additional uh, composing or accompanying synth parts that we that I call additions, you know, ads or replacements where a composer will send me a cue and say, can you just make a pass on this? And I'll add whatever I think needs to go in and I'll replace things that I think aren't quite working. And then they send them, you know, 50 audio tracks or whatever and they can pick and choose what they want from that. And th- that's, how, that's what I did with Steve on the... Uh, Jablonski on Bloodshot. Mm. He sent me some sketches he had in the works, and I uh, most of it was kind of drum loop stuff. It was he he had uh, another sound. He and another sound designer had come up with this crazy subdivided way of doing a seven eight time signature that I had that I hadn't quite I, I hadn't heard anything quite like it before. So it was it was pretty thrilling to approach that and come up with a bunch of almost almost acoustic but completely electronic drums and percussion sounds for that.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's really amazing to me that you're, I mean, you're so fluid with like zebra at this point. It's just like scrolling through your Instagram, some of those sounds and like art patches where it's like, it sounds kind of like a guitar, but it's definitely all done in zebra. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: Working at remote in, in one summer we had, we had a bit of a lull. And in that time I decided while, uh, Hans and, and the team went on tour, the first tour, a, a live tour. And I decided at that point, I wanted to be the best Zebra programmer on the planet. <laughs> so I was staying there extremely late nights, just digging into that thing module by module. Okay, what does this knob do? What does this knob do? Okay, what happens if I if I patch this LFO to this thing and then manually move another thing? And, and I, I got deep, deep, deep into that synth. And I I think that probably was the most informative period in terms of sound design uh, in my whole career. Wow. I, to this day, have yet to find something that I feel like is as comprehensive and as powerful as Zebra. It's a little bit esoteric and it's a little bit obtuse on the surface, but once you get into it, there's not much outside of hardware modular synths that uh, that I, I think is more flexible
0: yeah it's funny because when i um i left la for a bit i kind of regretted leaving my make noise modular synth things back home and then Mm. i was like well it must be doable to like make some of those like of my favorite sounds in zebra and i just like moused around for 20 minutes read online some forums and whatnot and ended up coming with some stuff that was pretty close and yeah yeah yeah, it's really funny that it's like it's just so versatile.
1: It is. Yeah, it absolutely is. I I find I can get pretty much anything I want out of it. And that there there are very few other synth tools, software synth tools that that um I lean on as heavily. I, I don't think there's any that I lean on as heavily, but there there are only a few that I even consider for a lot of things.
0: Right. Well, one of the sound design things I think is like so crazy about your your process and something like I've tried to learn from again, mostly from Instagram, (laughs) but, uh, it's just like the way you use the M segs and zebra and like you do crazy stuff where you just hold down one note and you move some faders and it's just, it always feels expressive and like evolving and, uh, and fresh
1: functionally. There's not a lot of use for those kinds of patches. I mean, I, I don't like to sell that kind of thing, uh, to a client. And I don't like to make those kind of things for clients because I feel like they do too much. There's too much of me in there and there's not enough of them in there. But there's also some limits in application too where you have to take into account track timing offsets and MIDI controllability and when do you re-trigger it and, and when do you stop the loop and then you have to print things down if you want to take out one. I mean, it just, it gets overly complicated, especially if there's going to be a bunch of controls to it. And some of those single patches will take me half a day to make and most of that is is just finding the most expressive ways of using as many controls as possible right so some of those patches i'll build in eight different midi controls outside of the two two stages of volume control that i use and that that gets pretty (laughs) that gets pretty tricky to to have mean meaningful but contextual changes across a lot of dimensions in that one single patch Mm. But I I enjoy making those I, I I just think they're fun but the m segs yeah the m segs I think I think they're the most they're my favorite and they're the most interesting tool in in that synth right that in the that in the comb filters
0: hmm. yeah I've really been getting into those recently especially for like very percussive yeah there's
1: theirs are good yeah 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 I, just kind of as a hobby I like I like m- trying to make as a, a natural sounding acoustic drums as possible in zebra and the comb filters go a long way in getting there.
0: Hmm. It's funny you mentioned that. Cause I was, uh, I was, on, I was messaging a uh, Howard scar on Facebook once about, we we're just like talking about zebra stuff. Um, oh, he's my favorite. I love how he's the best. And I think I was asking, or I was like, I had this idea of like trying to create like a piano patch in zebra so it's like all synthetic, mm-hmm. but it would just be something that either was like a doubler for a real piano or just got like as close as possible so you could, then you can sculpt it even more. So if you want like a distorted piano, mm-hmm. you actually just distort this patch and like leave the acoustic piano intact. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, that's such a stupid idea. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's a that's a very limited application of using a synthesizer just kind of across the board mm-hmm. where you have to approach it like you would, approach an instrument but using it to mimic an instrument is is just not a very interesting use of of a thing that's not designed to do that thing where i i think you should approach the synth like you would approach playing a piano and it would be more interesting to try to mimic the synth sound on the piano to me than to mimic a piano sound on a synth cuz if you're going to use a piano just use a piano right you you can get all the same effects you just put distortion plugins on the back of a of a piano sampler right I mean, the way I would approach what you were talking about as a piano doubler would be to have my main piano in one play on one track. Then I'd have a completely different piano on the next track and I would put so many effects and processing on it that you would only marginally recognize it as a piano. Hmm. And then then you have all of the automation and everything in in your sequencer, you know, in, in your cubase or whatever. That's uh all separate from the synth, but that said, there's a lot of value in keeping everything in one place too
0: right. Yeah, it's funny too that like I almost feel like sometimes if if you do like a a zebra patch where there's a lot of um, room for creative controls and whatnot and just lots of faders attached to make it unique, it's almost like you're creating your own instrument in each patch.
1: That's right, that's right, Yeah. That's right. And, and in many cases, it's almost like making, well, almost, it is, I think, composing an entire piece, but on the scale of one second instead of one minute or whatever. Hmm. And, and there's a lot of times, I mean, almost every project, pretty much every project, there are some patches where I'll spend the same kind of focus and effort on a single patch, usually in my template stage, as I would on, uh, on writing a whole piece of music. Uh, th- this is especially true on things like signature sounds you know character character introductions or or big stings you know reveals or whatever to get those shaped just right and to get them emotionally meaningful and and powerful it it takes that same kind of that same kind of effort it it isn't just you know making a zebra patch for me isn't just making a zebra patch I, i'm trying to make something that that has character and that has direction and and fits the language of whatever the project is going to be, and fits the context of all of the things i'm going to be making around it that's part of the reason why i I, I am torn about the idea of selling patches commercially you know p- patch collections commercially because I want to dedicate more of myself to the work than that i mean I consider myself a soloist you know if on the same scale as a, if I'd have been a trumpet player, right, or a, or a, a violin player, or something like that, I consider myself a soloist. And and it, even though it's a very technical job, and that's not to say instrumental work is not technical, because it is absolutely 100 percent technical. I I think the artistry is what's important. It's not the it's not the technique so much. And and that's that's my focus. That's my goal. I wanna I wanna I wanna I wanna be an artist with my work.
0: Right. Into the Spider Verse, that Daniel Pemberton score. There's one character where there's this, like this horn sound that I think was made on ARP twenty six hundred that goes like for, for the, yeah, the, the
1: bad guy. Yeah, yeah, and yeah,
0: that's yeah, yeah. like that is the whole piece of music. That's the theme. It's like, of course, there's yeah, drums. Yeah. And- my
1: my brother saw that in a theater actually, and he was like, "Did you make this sound? It sounds just like you. Did you make this?" And I'm like, "No, but that's a great that's a great noise, isn't it?"
0: Right. It's kind of trumpet E in a way.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah yeah I mean that's a big thing. I mean, ever since the bram craze took off these these big like they're big heavy brassy alerts and sirens those, those have been really popular. They're everywhere in trailers, you know right but they also make really powerful character reveals or you know, oh, there's a giant robot that's about to step on me moments and I, I gotta give a lot of props to the sound effects, sound designers that make those kinds of things in context. I mean, there's, I don't know who the sound designer was on Terminator Salvation, you know, the Christian Bale Terminator Salvation, but the large robot noises in that are just stunning. Hmm. I love them because they have that Bram metallic comb filter character, but they're so rich and wide frequency spectrum. And they're expressive and and they're they're perfect for the movements that the, I mean they're just so beautifully implemented,
0: for sure. And are there any sound designers who are like, or people who who create like these types of like synthetic textures who are treated? Do you think like soloists right now, or do you think that's just like a shift that uh, it's going to take time and that we should strive for? It?
1: I think I think there are some who are out there who are doing that already, but who don't know their own value. Uh, and, and I think because Many of us are kind of in that same position because there's—I don't think really any widespread precedent for it yet. Uh, I, I think we undersell ourselves a lot, and I, I think we have a lot bigger role in a score's direction than we think we do. And that was one of my favorite things in working with with Hans was that he loved to bring sound designers in very early from the very beginning of his creative process to determine the the language of the, of the score to determine the the vocabulary of the score. And I, I, uh, I haven't really had another client who gives that kind of weight to that role as
0: Hans. Hmm. I'm sure a lot of that has to do with Hans himself being a really great sound designer himself and synthesis. Oh
1: yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Watching him work with zebra or watching him work with his big Giorgio five U modular, Was well, that was really something special. It was really inspiring,
0: right? It's good to know it gets use.
1: (laughs) Oh yeah, 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 yeah. It was, it was, it was always a lot of fun to, uh, you know, on the couple of projects I did with him to chat or argue or debate over how to approach a certain problem in Zebra. Early on in Dunkirk, we spent a lot of time together trying to replace the clock sounds and and. Make big. He he had this one huge, big, heavy drum patch that I'm not sure ended up getting much use because the direction of the score completely changed after after that. But yeah, you know, we were talking about you know we we'd argue about oh how do we map this modulation and how do we map this modulation to this modulation and how do we give even these small ticks and talks and clicks and ticky tackies and how how do we make all of this stuff meaningful and have vibe? His word was vibe because every sound has to carry the same importance as this pocket watch concept that we had for that score. And speaking of Howard Scar, he made us a a zebra patch that is an absolute masterpiece. And a lot of the pocket watch you hear, in addition to, I mean, there's a great story that Christopher Nolan actually, that was his his concept. And he sent us like 10 minute long recordings of three different pocket watches that he had. And that became, the spine basically of that whole score mm. and we wanted to be able to have a little bit more control over things and a little bit more diversity over things and and ways of blending in and out of his pocket watch recordings and so we started trying hans and i started trying to find ways of replacing those or, or you know supplementing those clocks mm. and uh eventually hans reached out to to our friend mr scar and uh he sent us back uh, i don't know 25 different patches of varying you know textures and timbers, and the the clocks he sent us in that were just unbelievable they were breathtaking the the amount of detail and, and the the craziest thing about how he's worked to me is the efficiency by which he creates hugely useful patches he'll where where Hans and I were just like slap more modules on it throw you know and our our patches will have 25 modules in the in the the synthesis grid alone, and then we we don't have enough spaces in the effects grid in the in or in the, in the modulation slots. I and mean, for for that one, he reached out to you. He and they built us a a version that had you know twice the m segs and twice the comb filters. And the the version of Zebra that's out now has all of that stuff in it. Right. Um, but yeah, it, I mean, and nobody else has that kind of pull, I imagine. But uh, but yeah, it was. It, that was fun. That was really. That was a good time.
0: Yeah, it's so uh, funny how, I mean, as much as like the word the hybrid composer, you know, is overused at this point, but even something like that where you take an acoustic sound, you try to replicate and then also augment or or replace. It's like
1: that's the big one. I I think many quote unquote hybrid composers approach a synth like it's another orchestral instrument. And one of, the, one of the things that I think is the most critical component of really marrying the worlds of the orchestral and the, and the electronic are not approaching a synth, uh, come from not approaching a synth that way. It's, it's not adding a pad to an orchestral score. It's, it's writing a piece of music that has equal parts of both. And then they, the, the overlap can happen, but I also think that it should be minimal. Like you should not be making patches, I think. You should not be making patches to, supp- to, to replace an orchestral instrument. And you should not be trying to use orchestral instruments to replace an electronic patch. I, I, I think the, the two have to stand firmly enough on their own. And then you weave them together by creating a piece that takes into account both sides of the process as opposed to writing or, an orchestral piece and tacking on some synth stuff, or writing an electronic piece and tacking on some orchestral stuff. You've got to completely interweave those, those two sides of that. Right. And, and there are some who do it well, and there are some who, who I, I think could, could use a little more practice on it, who, who, who I think could, could stand to expand their context on it a little bit.
0: Hmm. Who are the composers who you think are doing a great job of that?
1: I think Johan Johansson was was really the one who was driving on that, at least in terms of commercial cinema. I I think the sound design elements of his score are not just elements; they are primary characters in the way he approached everything. And a lot of that, I think, comes from. I I read an interview with him recently about uh, the Sicario score, where he said there wasn't an orchestral recording that didn't go through heavy processing. Everything in that, he said, everything in that score got tons and tons of processing and so i i think you hear that where you he may have recorded a ensemble of people of drummers playing floor floor toms or something like that but then he put that through a bunch of distortions and heavy compression then they side-chained these uh industrial ambiences to that so you got this kind of uh give and take between those two textures And that made that cue super powerful, but it's also lean and it's efficient and and there's a real beauty in that.
0: Mm. Yeah, I was always amazed at his process where he, like stuff that was so certain was like a, some synth I'd never heard of was actually just a cello, like ran through a bunch of distortion or, yeah.
1: Yeah, or or mangled up on on an old tape recorder.
0: Mm, Right, yeah, you never have to like, you don't always have to go expensive. You can (laughs) make things cheap to make it awesome. (laughs) Sure, sure. Uh, wow, this has been amazing. Uh, my last uh, segment for the podcast I was going to ask about was, well, just really any sound design tricks, or I want to list off a category of sound and get your quick tip on how to make it stand out. Okay. So the first one I have here is just pad.
1: Everything has to be moving. Nothing can be stagnant. Uh, but random modulation is not your friend. You, you want to be able to have 100% recallability every time because you don't want to print something down that goes out to a client, and they get married to that one thing, and then you can never recreate that one thing again. So sum your modulations, mix your modulations, whatever you have to do. In Zebra, for instance, you can do a quote-unquote user version uh, waveform on your LFOs, and you can make that 32 points long. So draw that in and make it you know pseudo random right but it's 100% recreatable every time cool but yeah everything has to be moving in a in a in a pad. and i and i ideally ideally every voice would be moving a little bit differently you don't want the whole patch moving the same at the same time
0: right yeah either based off pitch or just yeah number or
1: yeah or, or some filter cutoff or something like that like uh, or even even volume, everything everything has to be moving a little bit differently in every voice. I mean, that, that's how that's how it works in or, in orchestral world, right? In acoustic world, right? Like you don't have exactly the same violinist doing every seat, you know, in in a violin section recording and performing it exactly the same way. You may have sixteen very different people performing in, in in this idea of the, that they're doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. But, but it's that, it's that small diversity in the section that's, that, that makes it so lush and interesting and, and vibrant.
0: For sure. Next we
1: have plucks. Plucks. Um, that's one I, I kind of don't, I don't care for as much in, in terms of synthesis. I think you get much more interesting results by using acoustic sources and, and processing them. So even a basic string pluck or something like that or a guitar you know you mute it and you, you mute the strings and you ch- you chug on a muted guitar you that's endlessly more interesting than i think a lot of things you could do on a synth because you got you've got to have the variation between every pluck but at the same time you also have that same have to have that same 100% recallability where the plucks all happen the same way in the same order but you need that variance between them and you can build a bunch of that into a synth. I mean, with a synth like Zebra, you can approach it the same way I approach the pad. But in something like that, I think the most critical component is the envelope shape. Mm. That's the the and, and especially the initial transient. Where you can make something sound a little bit strummed by, or, or a little bit, uh, or, or two sounds, you, or three sounds, or whatever, you can make them sound a little bit a little bit ensemble esque by by. Cha- copy and pasting the transient, but then changing the timing on it just a little bit. Same goes for percussion too. But yeah, you you want it to have that, you want it to have that ensemble vibrance, that ensemble variability.
0: Cool. Well, I think this next one's slightly out, but drones then?
1: Uh, Drones are the same way. And I think, yeah, they have to have a lot of motion. They have to have multiple elements stacked up. I, I think... Trying to build all of all of uh, an entire drone into a single patch, uh, kind of limits what you can do with it. But uh, I I kind of think you have to you have to build the drone from the very biggest it's ever going to be, and then think subtractively while you're working with them in context. And, and you know a, a low distorted sawtooth wave can be a perfectly useful drone you know or or sawtooth wave ensemble can be a perfectly useful drone but they can be endlessly more interesting than that i mean take the girl with the dragon tattoo score for instance there's so many beautiful distorted drones with a lot of you know mid to high frequency content on top that's doing interesting things and sometimes the most interesting part of a drone is not necessarily the note that's the center point right but i i think in work in in trying to make a good drone you try to make it interesting on its own not treat it like it's an accompaniment to something else mm, right and again a lot of it a lot of it is modulation and modulation of modulation
0: right can you expand just a little bit more on the modulation of modulation
1: yeah I, I tend to think of it I, I envision uh, mathematical formulas so it's like uh, you have a variable and then you have uh, or you have a number and then you have a multiplier variable outside of a parenthetical, right? So you have like X parentheses two or something like that, right? Or, or, or Y, let's say Y. And Y is the output. And X is a moving thing. You know, let's say it's a sine wave. Or I mean, I'm butchering math here and, and I apologize to anybody who knows this stuff better than me. But that concept is what made it make sense for me because you can just keep nesting things, right? So let's say you have an LFO going to a pitch of a sine wave. Well, if you modulate the speed of that LFO with another LFO, you can get some really interesting results. And and you can change the shape of the way the initial LFO is altering it, the thing that it's altering. And, And when you get really intentional with that, you can build in some, some really interesting variation. I mean, for, for instance one of my favorite things to do is is map velocity in that way where I'll have I mean that's essentially how velocity works, right? You're you're you have your ADSR or you know your envelope modulating the volume of whatever's going into an amplifier, but then velocity is scaling the top, you know, scaling the t- the top end of that modulation up to, you know, full value or whatever, from zero up to full value.
0: Right. Wow. Okay. That's a lot to, to digest. And I'm going <laughs> to.
1: Yeah. It, it gets, it gets a little, it gets a little abstract. It gets a little hard to imagine when you're, when you're not looking at it, but once, once it's in place and you have a modulator modulating a modulation to a thing, then it looks a lot clearer than trying to conceptualize it. And, and maybe it's just the way that I'm approaching it or I'm, I'm describing it that some, somebody else would have a clearer concept of or a clearer description of than I'm, than I'm using.
0: For sure. Well, there you have it. There's the tips to, uh, to make your synth sounds not suck as much. Uh, so thank you, Drew. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any uh, projects or anything coming up that you want to share with the uh, the folks
1: um, I'm working on a video game at the moment, but the it's very early on, and the, those schedules tend to be quite long. So, uh, I, I guess not really. <laughs> Other than that one thing that's that we're not gonna we won't see released for quite a while. Gotcha. Um, yeah, I mean I'm, I keep I keep busy, but it, a lot of it is just kind of small things, piecemeal here and there, hmm. and far less of the big commercial projects.
0: Gotcha. Well, Drew, it was a pleasure having you on uh, the show.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the invitation.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Composer Talk. If you like what we're doing, feel free to follow us on Instagram or Facebook. The show is mixed and sounds great. Thanks to the incredible Eric Bard, who's also a talented composer, producer, and mixer. Until next time, this has been Matthew Wong.